Good morning. Uh, welcome everyone to the historic 1767 Chowan County Courthouse. Uh, our state constitution provides that the Supreme Court of North Carolina is to hear our cases in Raleigh or other places as designated by the Supreme Court. I mean, not by the Supreme Court, by the legislature. Uh, in 2004, the legislature, uh, uh, in response to the uh, renovation and restoration of this courthouse, uh, uh, passed legislation saying that we could hold court in Edenton. Uh, last time we were here was five years ago. Uh, we are delighted to be back in Edenton, and we so uh, appreciate the folks here in Edenton for their incredible hospitality. Uh, so welcoming to all of us, and we appreciate that. Uh, I noticed some high school students in our group. Uh, welcome. We're glad to have you all with us this morning as well. Uh, the case we have next is Harper et al. versus Hall et al., and we will hear from the appellant. Good morning, Your Honors. I'm Elizabeth Theodore on behalf of the Harper plaintiffs. I'm addressing three issues today. The legislative defendant's congressional appeal, their motion to dismiss that appeal, and the plaintiff's appeal of the remedial Senate map. Um, and I'd like to reserve six minutes for rebuttal. The court should not dismiss legislative defendant's congressional appeal because doing so would reward their gamesmanship and prejudice the plaintiffs. The legislative defendants are in the United States Supreme Court right now in this case asking the court to decide what they say are open questions of North Carolina state law about the meaning of state statutes governing judicial review of congressional maps. But this court should be the one to decide those questions on the merits. Let, let me ask you about gamesmanship. What do you mean by gamesmanship? Uh, so for example, the legislative defendants uh, in their cert petition and in their cert reply specifically cited um, the uh, trial court's re remedial decision um, as one of the decisions justifying uh, the grant of cert in the United States Supreme Court. They specifically said in their cert petition in their reply that the imposition by fiat of a remedial map by courts, by, by state courts supported cert. And so for them to now turn around having obtained cert on the basis of that challenge and attempt to dismiss the appeal uh, constitutes gamesmanship as does- How, how is that so when they're uh, uh, request to the U.S. Supreme Court deals with a federal constitutional issue, not a state constitutional issue. And that federal constitutional issue has arisen uh, regardless of what we decide with regard to the congressional districts at this point. Well, it, it, Your Honor, it doesn't arise regardless of what you decide for, for two reasons. First of all, they are pressing in the Supreme Court an elections clause, a federal elections clause challenge to the imposition of a remedial map independently from the court's Harper One decision on liability. Um, and so for them to try to leapfrog over this court and dismiss their appeal in this court while how, keeping- How is it leapfrogging over this court when it's a federal constitutional challenge, whereas this court is focused on state constitutional challenges? Well, the normal rule in the United States Supreme Court is that you have to press all of your federal arguments in the court below if you want to preserve those arguments to the United States Supreme Court. Well, apparently they believe that's already been done. Uh, hence I, they granted cert. And it seems to me your argument is better placed at the Supreme Court of the United States. Why wouldn't you make that argument there? 
Well, two reasons, Your Honor. First of all, at the time the Supreme Court granted cert, the legislative defense had not moved to dismiss this appeal. And second, uh, deciding whether uh, an argument is preserved under North Carolina law, which is the second thing we want this court to address, is a matter of North Carolina law. And let me just point you to what the legislative defendants said in their cert reply to the United States Supreme Court about this very issue. We said to the Supreme Court, you should deny cert because the legislative defendants at the liability phase had never raised an elections clause argument in the trial court. And the legislative defendants said, if the North Carolina Supreme Court thought that that argument was waived as a matter of North Carolina law, they would have said so. You can look in their cert reply, that's what they said. It's for the North Carolina Supreme Court to say whether an argument has been preserved as a matter of North Carolina didn't the, law. Didn't the majority opinion address that argument? The majority opinion said that the that the um, it hadn't been raised below, but they were addressing it anyway. And the legislative defendants pointed to that and said because the majority had not said that it was waived, it was preserved for the North Carolina, for the United States Supreme Court. And so here, where the legislative defendants have expressly and intentionally forfeited their elections clause argument as to the remedial plan in their brief in this court, it's really important for this court to say that that is a waiver as a matter of North Carolina law. Um, and so that's the second thing we're asking the court to say. Um, the first thing we're asking the court to say is to hold that section 267.1 and section 120-2.3 and section 120-2.4 specifically authorize state court judicial review of congressional districting plans for compliance with the North Carolina Constitution, including adoption of remedial maps. And that's important because the legislative defendants are asking the Supreme Court to reverse this court's merits determination in Harper 1 and the trial court's imposition of the remedial map on the erroneous theory that these statutes don't apply to state constitutional challenges at all. And they, they, have, they are telling the Supreme Court that these statutes are, quote, best read as merely laying out the procedures that govern a federal constitutional challenge brought in state court. That's what they are currently saying to the United States Supreme Court. That's why, that's why they want to dismiss this appeal, because they want to be able to press that completely wrong and atextual argument about North Carolina state law in the United States Supreme Court. And it is very, very clear, both under this court's jurisprudence and under the United States Court's the United States Supreme Court's jurisprudence that interpreting state statutes is a matter for the state court. Um, and the, the, the reason this is important is because if, the legis if, if these state statutes, as they do, specifically authorize judicial review by the North Carolina State Court under the Constitution of Congressional Redistricting Plans, it doesn't matter whether the legislative defendant's federal elections clause argument is right, because the legislator, legislature will have authorized the review at issue. What would be the consequence if we did dismiss the appeal? Uh, if the court dismisses the appeal, I think the court should say um, that as a matter of North Carolina, as a matter of North Carolina law, um, all of the arguments with respect to the remedial map are waived. The elections clause argument is waived as a matter of North Carolina law. And as we've explained, we've, we've, we've explained some other things in our, in our brief that I, I would direct you to that for the, the best articulation um, of, the, of the sort of collateral estoppel and res judicata consequences. Would you foresee any consequence um, in the um, Supreme Court of the United States? Yeah, you know, we would, we would argue that. And I, you know, I think, look, of course, the federal consequences are for the United States Supreme Court to decide. Right. But, but the state consequences and what the dismissal means for state law 
is absolutely for this court to decide. And if this court doesn't decide those questions and it doesn't say what we've suggested, um, the legislative defendants will rely on that silence as they did at the search stage to say that there has been no waiver as a matter of North Carolina law. Um, and so, look, as, as, as we've said in our brief, we think the best thing to do um, is to just decide the congressional appeal. Rule 37 makes clear that the court does not have to dismiss at this stage. This court's precedents and other precedents make clear that it's appropriate to consider gamesmanship and prejudice when deciding whether to dismiss. The appeal is now fully briefed, so we think the best thing to do would be to affirm the trial court's decision imposing an interim map and hold specifically that these state statutes authorize judicial review under the state constitution and that the elections clause argument is now waived because it's not in the opening brief. Um, and unless the court has questions about um, the substance of the trial court's um, decision on the, on the proposed remedial map, I'd like to turn to the, our appeal of, of the Senate decision. So the, the standard in Harper for constitutionality is whether voters of all political parties have substantially equal opportunity to translate votes into seats. And that means the court said that voters are entitled to have substantially the same opportunity to elect a supermajority or a majority of representatives as the voters of the opposing party would be afforded if they comprised the same percentage of the statewide vote share in that same election. And so the trial court committed legal error with respect to the Senate map because it did not actually address that, that governing standard. Overwhelming evidence, including the reports of all three neutral advisors, showed that the remedial Senate plan failed that standard and significantly favored Republicans. And I'd say the clearest evidence of the failure to satisfy that standard is in the graphic at page 24. Well, at, at a more fundamental level, is your argument that the trial court in the remedial orders decision lacked sufficient support, or are you saying something else? We're saying, we're saying both. We're saying that this trial court applied the wrong legal standard. It never actually addressed or made any factual findings about the, the actual legal standard. And then we're also saying that with respect to the standard the court did apply, the mean, median gap and efficiency gap standard, it made uh, factual errors. It was not supported by competent evidence. I mean, it, it is, of course, up to the trial court to decide up to, you know, within limits what factual decisions to make under our standard of review, isn't it? Well, what, what we're saying is that the, the trial court the, 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 the trial court had to, had to address the ultimate legal test that this court set out in Harper 1, and it never did that, and that is a legal error. It didn't, it didn't make any factual findings that go to the ultimate legal test this court set out. Instead, what the trial court did was it said that the map was constitutional because it satisfied or purportedly satisfied an efficiency gap threshold of 7% and a mean median threshold of 1%. But this court specifically said in the Harper 1 opinion that satisfying those metrics does not insulate a plan. It said we are, quote, not identifying precise mathematical thresholds which conclusively demonstrate or disprove the existence of an unconstitutional partisan gerrymander. And that's exactly what the trial court did. It said that it was going to ignore all the other evidence, including the fact that every single neutral special advisor to the masters concluded that this plan had significant partisan bias. And it said that it was going to rely on those two thresholds to, to conclusively disprove the existence of a partisan gerrymander. 
So um, why isn't that um, analysis of the evidence from the experts within the discretion and the role of the trial court? Well, the trial court, the trial court has to actually address the relevant legal standard. The relevant legal standard is whether voters have substantially the same opportunity to elect a supermajority or majority of representatives as the voters of the opposing party would be afforded if they had the same percentage of the statewide vote share in the same election. And so, and the trial court just didn't address that standard and that's, that's a legal error. That's not within the discretion of the trial court. And I would, I would just point you to the graphic at page 24 of the Harper opening brief. And this is an analysis by Dr. Mattingly and Hirschfeld that goes directly to the metric the court announced in Harper one. It, it is measuring how many seats each party would get at the same vote share across the 16 most recent statewide elections. And you can visually see on page 24 the enormous disparity. There's an average of four seat advantage for Republicans at the same vote share. Um, and even Dr. Barber, who was the legislative defendants expert, his analysis showed that the Senate map failed this court standard. His analysis showed um, and this is the graphic on page 27 of our brief, that the, when the Republicans get 55% of the vote in the Senate map, they get 33 seats, which is, which is a supermajority. And when the Democrats get 55% of the vote, they only get 28 seats. Is it your position that the trial court um, was required to address and either accept or explain why it was not accepting the testimony of each of the experts? Our, our position is that the trial court was required to assess the evidence that went to the standard this court identified and it didn't do that but also your honor i mean with respect to the with respect to the um, mathematical metrics that the trial court looked at it it committed it committed very clear factual error so the court you know the, the trial court said that if you satisfy the one percent mean median and the seven percent efficiency gap standard then you're you're constitutional and you know we disagree with that but you know the fact of the matter is the trial court was simply wrong about the 1% mean median standard. So the, the trial court ad adopting the special master report said that a majority of advisors and experts found a mean median gap of less than 1%. And I mean, it's not just that that's not supported by competent evidence, it's just, it's just wrong. Uh, the, the opposite is true. So two of the four special master advisors found a mean median gap of more than 1%, and two of the three experts found a mean median gap of more than 1%. So a majority, a majority of the experts and advisors found that the map failed even the standard that the trial court identified. And I'll note that the two special master advisors who found a mean median gap of less than 1% um, were using a single election composite rather than a bunch of ele representative elections, which is what this court said was the relevant test. And uh, counsel, excuse me. Uh, you used the word majority uh, yeah. when you were comparing. Uh, that to me suggests that, that you're asking us to reweigh the evidence. Could you please address address your point in that regard? I'm not, I'm not asking you to reweigh the evidence. The trial court said that um, that said that its its uh, determination was correct because a majority found that the mean median gap was less than one percent. In fact, as is undisputed, a majority of the advisors and experts found that it was more than one percent. So it's not a matter of reweighing. It's just a matter of the fact that the relevant metric the trial court identified um, pointed in the opposite direction. And that, that's very clearly not supported by competent evidence. And, and a follow-up then, uh, with respect to uh, the special masters, was 
Was that language found there as well or just in, in the order? The, the, the majority uh, language was in the special master's report, but the trial court adopted that report. Uh, and, and to that end, um, there, there should be a presumption of legislative uh, uh, appropriate behavior. Uh, by simply adopting the, uh, the legislative report in whole, excuse me, the special master's report in whole, does that suggest perhaps that presumption was or was not uh, uh, honored? I'm not sure it suggests, I, I don't think it suggests that either way. I mean, we, for the reasons in our brief, we don't think a presumption uh, applies in the remedial context. Um, and that's what multiple, multiple courts have held. Um, if, if I could reserve the remainder of time for rebuttal, please. Thank you. Good morning, Your Honors, and may it please the court. I'm Hillary Klein, a member of the Chatham Orange County uh, Bar, appearing on behalf of Common Cause, and I'd like to reserve three minutes for rebuttal. I'd like to address two matters today. First, Common Cause's equal protections challenge to the state legislative maps and the harms still present in those plans. And second, the trial court's failure to reject the House map as an unconstitutional partisan gerrymander. To my first points, Legislatures violated North Carolina's Equal Protections Clause because they intentionally destroyed two functioning crossover districts in the areas of Senate District 4 and House District 10 that under the benchmark plan performed for black voters. Legislatures knew because their own experts told them that the districts they had drawn in 2021 for these areas would deny black voters the chance of electing a candidate of their choice. Their own experts told them, and that is not in dispute. But when legislatures went back to draft remedial maps, where they had statewide discretion to bring those maps into partisan compliance, they chose, they purposefully chose, to redraw other areas of the state while ensuring the destruction of functioning crossover districts in eastern North Carolina. Legislatures destroyed these crossover districts, even though preserving them would have helped bring the map into partisan compliance. That fact is a quick question. Do you have any specific authority for the proposition that it's a violation of the Constitution to dismantle crossover districts? Um, yes, Your Honor. Uh, the Supreme Court, the federal Supreme Court, actually made that observation in the Strickland state, uh, case, um, specifically saying that uh, any intentional destruction of crossover districts uh, would bring serious equal protections, 14th and 15th Amendment. And as this court uh, is aware, uh, the state equal protections clause is actually even more broadly interpreted than the federal clause. Um, when they this, started, this, this may be a premature question, Ms. Klein. If it is, tell me. But assuming, for purposes of discussion, I'm bad to do that. Uh, that we were to accept your argument, what is the scope of the remedy that you are requesting solely with respect to the destruction of crossover districts issue? I was a little unclear after reading the briefs. I'm sure. Please enlighten me. Common cause has proposed and did propose in the remedial stage two crossover districts, two configurations that would preserve the crossover districts in these areas. For the house that is within the same 
cluster, so it's not that it will cause a ripple effect, it's very minimal, uh, the same cluster, these are compact districts, they were drawn without race predominating, they are crossover districts drawn within that house cluster, and for and the are Senate... Are you suggesting that we uh, specifically, um, this court adopt those districts or that we remand to the trial court for them to uh, apply a remedy that might include adopting those districts? We submit there is enough evidence that's undisputed um, from the remedial stage that this court absolutely can order those remedial districts. Um, the Fourth Circuit did something similar in the uh, McGee case in the Fourth Circuit, um, but at the very least it would require remand, if the court, even if the court disagreed. Make sure I understand your answer to the question I asked a second ago. The only remedy that you are requesting is either a remand or an order that would require adopting the two districts that have been identified in your briefs, plus adjustments to the surrounding districts. Um, yes, Your Honor. Uh, just for the equal protection right. violation, well, it would and just I mean, be I mean, the. I was trying to isolate the remedy that you were seeking with respect to your destruction of crossover district. Yes, Your Honor. So basically all you're asking is that the two districts that you've identified be approved uh, and then any necessary adjustments to surrounding districts be made. That's it. Yes, but I would, I would note that for the House, uh, again, it's isolated to that cluster. And for the Senate, it only requires combining one other cluster with one, other, one county splits, uh, split in Wayne County. So these are very limited proposed remedies to preserve these crossover districts. And that's further consistent with, with what this court did in the Stevenson case, where a similar equal protections uh, concern came up when the court was considering what the appropriate remedy would be. And there the court said, that uh, all state constitutional provisions have to be harmonized. And that includes the whole county provision with the Equal Protections Clause. Uh, these have to be harmonized. And Common Cause submits that its proposed remedial districts are the best um, harmonization of all of those. And I, and I guess I want to follow up on the question that Justice Hudson asked you. I heard you. She asked you what, you know, should we, are you asking us to remand it or uh, order the adoption of these districts as you have proposed them and your answer at least as I heard it was you can order it or you can remand it do you have a position as to what we should if I was to ask you directly what are you asking us to do what what is your answer we are asking the court to order that common causes proposed crossover districts why, be ordered why, on why remand. should we do that in lieu of remanding it given the constitutional structure of the state because there is enough um, evidence that is not in dispute from the remedial stage um, to uh, uh, substantiate that these proposed remedial districts are the best way to harmonize all of the various state constitutional requirements. Um, and the court has, has um, and courts have done similar uh, orders on uh, remediation. Um, I'd like to briefly address the second Let me point. Let on that just for a second. When you say it's the best way, that sort of implies that there might be other ways that would be acceptable and if that's the case why isn't that better handled by the trial court subject to review by by this court if necessary <coughs> the there is enough evidence uh, uh, from the remedial stage to show that these uh, remedial districts best harmonize all of the state constitutional provisions 
Um, there probably are other configurations that are possible, but uh, you know, quite frankly, the legislature already had a chance to do this in the trial court, um, failed to even consider these plans uh, when it was uh, confronted with these, and uh, the best remedy in that situation is for this court to order uh, equal protections, a specific equal protections remedy to, again, remedy the harm um, to the voters in eastern North Carolina who have been purposely targeted. Um, I'd like to just briefly address, well, if I may. In response to Justice Hudson's question about what case uh, was supportive of your position with crossover districts, you cited Strickland. Strickland, however, talked about uh, majority minority districts. Uh, and it said that there's no requirement of crossover districts. So how does that support your position? Um, because this is a state, Strickland was considering um, uh, uh, VRA-related claims, federal claims. This is a state equal protections challenge, and this is uh, the remedy to remedy a state equal protections violation of purposeful discrimination against voters in these areas. But Strickland doesn't address that at all. Strickland is looking at the Voters' Rights Act and requirements under the Voters' Rights Act. Yes, Your Honor, and it observed that the intentional destruction of functioning crossover districts would absolutely uh, raise equal protections, 14th and 15th Amendment problems. So even though it wasn't squarely on point, the court actually went out of its way to specify that that would be um, uh, equal protections violations, and that's exactly what we're uh, contending here. Um, I'd just like to briefly address the unconstitutionality of the House map. Um, uh, the court committed the same legal errors that my colleague has discussed, um, but importantly, the court um, erred as well in determining whether political geography necessitated the partisan skew in the House map. All of the, all of the competent, competent evidence shows that the House map um, denies substantially equal voting power. This is not necessitated by political geography um, of North Carolina. Our expert evaluated that and found as much. Um, we asked the court to reverse the remedial order as to the state legislative maps. I'll reserve any remaining time for rebuttal. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. I'll observe that uh, you have just over five minutes between the two of you for your rebuttal, so you all have to adjust your time accordingly. We'll hear from the uh, other appellant and appellee. Morning, Your Honor. Uh, may it please the court. Phil Strack for the legislative defendants. I'd like to reserve uh, three minutes for rebuttal. The era of judicial redistricting began this year, and based on the remedial process at issue in this appeal, it's already broken. This remedial case started with two sets of plans drawn by the legislature, legislative plans and congressional plans. These plans were submitted to the trial court for approval. All of these plans were drawn using the exact same metrics, the mean, median, and the efficiency gap, which was identified by this court. All of these plans were drawn using universal mapping software Maptitude to calculate the metrics. Mr. Strike, I'm sorry before to interrupt you, but before you get too far into it, do you want to say anything to address the motion to dismiss the congressional? Well, Your Honor, we'll stand on our motion. We think that that, that appeal should be dismissed, and we'll, we'll be glad to stand on our papers. Okay, thank you. All of those plans use Maptitude to calculate the metrics. And uh, all those plans were drawn using nonpartisan staff to use Maptitude to calculate the metrics, all to make sure they comply with this court's order. Has anybody alleged that the Maptitude 
map itself was an improper tool to be relied on by the General Assembly? No one has. Not the trial court, not the plaintiffs, no, no one has. Uh, Maptitude is universally used as an objective source to make those measurements, uh, and, that's, and that's what it was used, and frankly that's why it was used, to ensure there'd be no question about the objectivity of the actual metrics. If, if you use, instead of Maptitude, you use John's, excuse me, Bob's redistricting uh, app, as apparently, uh, at least maybe the, the trial court or the special masters may have used, will that impact the outcome of any analysis? It, it, it can. It obviously did. It's Dave's redistricting act, uh, app, by the way, and it did because obviously when the trial court hired its special masters who hired their assistants, they literally all came up with different calculations, results, for these metrics because they all use different ways. I mean, you had, for, for the congressional map, for instance, you had Dr. Groffman for mean median, he had 0.66, Dr. Jarvis 0.9, Dr. McGee said it might be 1.1, it might be 1.6, Dr. Wang said it might be 1.2, it might be 0.7. They literally all came up with different numbers for what ostensibly has been represented to be a simple math problem. Well, I'm trying to figure out the simple math part. So, Maptitude versus, sorry, Dave's redistricting app. But then also, I guess it depends on, you pick the statewide races, you want to plug into that, you're going to get different outcomes. Is that a correct statement? That is the reason for the different calculations. D Dr. Jarvis put it like this. Mr. He Mr. said Mr. different. Mr. Strack, I was okay. going to ask you this. Sorry. I'll please finish answering the Chief Justice's question. The only variable then is which elections are used to conduct the measurement? No, Your Honor. So I the, thought there was a second one, and I wanted to make right. sure that that was that That's going to be related to Chief Justice's question. So the, the reason for the different results is because they not only use different election data, and what Dr. Jarvis said was different plans perform differently under different elections, and that is invariably true. Um, and so you got to pick... You got to pick what elections, but also these measurements, these metrics themselves have different ways of calculating them, whether you average them or you do them individually. There are literally thousands upon thousands of ways, permutations, commutations of ways to just for these two measures. That's not even counting all the other alleged measures of partisan uh, fairness that uh, this court even mentioned in its. Um, uh, analysis and, and respectfully, Your Honors, what we would submit is this is no way to conduct constitutional analysis. This simply isn't the way it should be done. Is it a policy choice to determine whether you're going to use Maptitude or Dave's or some other redistricting? And is it a policy choice to determine uh, we choose these 12 statewide elections uh, relied on by these experts versus 13 versus 11 versus different 12? Are those all policy choices? Yes. And if so, who should make them? Yes, Your Honor. We believe those are all policy choices that the legislature should make within the contours of what this court's order was. The legislature did exactly that by choosing mean, median, efficiency gap, because those are the two measures that this court gave actually specific guidance about the, the, the threshold. And, and, and let me, I don't claim to be any more of a, of a mass scholar than the Chief Justice apparently does, but. Uh, <laughs> It seems to me that the argument that you have made in your brief is that, and, and my ultimate question is, am I reading your brief correctly? 
uh, is that once the General Assembly determines how a particular calculation under one of these approaches should be made, that calculation is somehow binding. Is that, that the argument, or are you making, am I misunderstanding your argument? Um, that's part of the argument. Okay. But what, we would, what we're contending, and what we've said in the brief, is that the measure that the General Assembly chooses and the way it chooses to calculate that measure is should be given deference. All right, and, and defer, deference means just because we seem to be engaging lots of semantics, lots of times. In your view, deference means what? It should be uh, accepted unless it's obviously wrong. Is is the trial court given in a remedial context given any discretion to determine whether? a particular calculation was either inappropriate or uh, erroneously performed in the sense that some other version of the variable ought to have been used rather than the ones that the General Assembly did. I'm sorry if that's a badly worded question. I hope you understand where I'm I'll, I'll try to answer it this way, Your Honor. If there had been evidence that Maptitude calculates these metrics wrong, then that's obviously evidence that the, the, the trial court could have taken into consideration about whether to accept those measurements. But uh, the General Assembly used MAPTITUDE, uh, it objectively used, it even used nonpartisan staff to make the calculations on MAPTITUDE so there would be no questions, so that none of the questions that have been raised in this appeal would even been, be an issue. And as to all those metrics that the General Assembly measured, both the House and the Senate and the Congressional Plan all met the 1.0 and the 7.0 metrics that this court identified, yet. What, what, it, it, it to what extent, then, are you arguing before us that the, you know, ultimately whether either of these two metrics is established presumably in most instances would be a decision of fact for the trial court, I would assume. Is that understanding wrong? Uh, within the deference that the trial court owes the General Assembly as a matter of this court's jurisprudence. Right. And so does the does a trial court have the authority in your view to look at these calculations and determine that in a particular set of circumstances in the trial court's opinion these results aren't an accurate measure of what the, the legal standard uh, sought to achieve i don't i don't if you're using mean, median, efficiency gap, and using magnitude, I don't see how the trial court could come to any other conclusion other than those are valid well, measures. I mean, and I'm talking about it as an analytical matter, not necessarily as a matter of results. If the trial court concludes that these two measures are, are appropriate as a general proposition, uh, do they then have the authority to examine the the manner in which those uh, approaches ought to be applied? Our argument is they have to defer to the legislature's choice how they're applied unless the legislature's choice is obviously wrong. So what's your authority for the deference, giving deference to the legislature in this process of a remedial redrawing of maps that have been declared unconstitutional? Uh, well, the, the best authority that I can think of is the Stevenson line of cases. The Stevenson case has made clear every case that came up to this court that the presumption of constitutionality applied. Now, this court, 
in Harper 1 has actually added a new layer of a presumption of constitutionality where this court said uh, effectively that if you're within the metrics, the 1% and the 7 then there's a presumption of constitutionality maybe, again. There may be a presumption of constitutionality. Well, maybe, but uh, <laughs> it, it, it's not much of a presumption if you don't know it, it's going to be a presumption going into it. See, the General Assembly actually has to put pencil to paper on these things. They have to have actual metrics. They have to have standards. They have to know how to draw it in advance to meet this court's uh, orders. And if, if if, what's, if what the General Assembly has to do is pick randomly out of a mishmash of elections and metrics and just shoot in the dark, it can't draw a plan that way because what happens then is then it becomes the court's decision as well, to what happens. If the, if the trial court is supposed to oversee the redrawing by the legislature, um, how can they do that without reviewing the calculations and the methods that are used by the General Assembly in producing the product that they submit to the court for review. They can and should review the metrics, but they should defer to what the General Assembly used unless what the General Assembly did was obviously and clearly wrong. And that is manifestly not the case here, in our opinion. Here, you, you, the, the exact same measures were used in the exact same way for every single map. And what happened? The trial court accepted Senate House map rejected the congressional man. Well, that happened because you had this mishmash of calculations that the special master assistants came up with. And they rejected the congressional plan and accepted the others, even though on all of the measures, mean, median, efficiency gap, all of the assistants and the party's experts, a majority of them, found that the mean, median, or efficiency gap was within the presumptive guidelines that this very court had set. So what was the difference then between the Senate and House maps and the congressional map? Well, we don't know. Why? Because the trial court didn't tell us. Uh, it said it was relying on the special masters and the assistants, but those reports show that the congressional plan was in a good a position as a Senate plan. And then if you're thinking about the congressional plan, think about Dr. Jarvis's conclusions. He's the only one who ran with this, this ensemble concept. And he was, that, as a result, um, he was able to actually look at political geography. As he said, the individual metrics provide some insight as to gerrymandering. But that depends heavily on the political geography of the state, so it is important to interpret those scores in the context of ensembles. He did that. Nobody else did. What did Dr. Jarvis conclude about the congressional map? It was not a gerrymander. Not a gerrymander. So the only expert to consider that plan in the context of political geography concluded it was not uh, a gerrymander. What he did conclude was that the LCV map was an outlier in favor of Democrats. But the, but the legislative defendant's plan was fine. And that was as to all the metrics, mean median, partisan bias, efficiency gap, declination. So how, how do we reconcile? If you're the legislature and you're looking at this and you drew these plans using these measures, how do you reconcile the trial courts approving the legislative plans but disapproving the congressional plan? And respectfully, we would submit it can't be reconciled. In, in Harper 1, this court noted that in Baker versus Carr, the U.S. Supreme Court entered the political thicket. Based on the remedial process, process at issue in this case, 
The courts in North Carolina have now moved past the political thicket and have entered the political wilderness. So now are, are you asking us to reverse what we said in Harper versus Hall where we made clear that the, the overall arching question is whether or not all voters have the same opportunity to translate their votes into seats and that these measures are, are one way to address that but that the court should be looking at the totality of the, of the circumstances. Right, Your Honor. What, what we would contend is what this remedial process proved is that's not a judicially manageable standard. So you're asking us to reverse what we held in that case? I'm just saying that this remedial process, which is an issue in this particular appeal, demonstrates that what this court gave the trial court is not judicially manageable. What it did is it gave the trial court carte blanche to pick the maps that it wanted to pick based on whatever reason it had, but it wasn't based on the metrics because the General Assembly's metrics were all within this court's guidelines and were all the same for all the maps. Well, let me ask you about another judicially established standard under Stevenson, the question of districts needing to be geographically compact. And in that circumstance, Maptitude similarly has, is it 12 different measures of compactness? Um, and our courts have never said, as the General Assembly can pick one or two and, is, and given a bright line cutoff for it, uh, Maptitude has to produce um, a, a measure that meets this standard on the compactness measures. Instead, the, the court in Stevenson looked at some of the districts and said that district is not geographically compact and required the legislature to redraw them. Yeah, I don't, in that, in that case, I don't recall that the legislature picked a particular compactness score and said, hey, you, the court, you should defer the score. Right, but I guess my point is, overall, big picture, we use that method to determine that under the state constitution, legislative districts are sufficiently geographically compact. How is that different than in this situation, we're using a variety of measures, but say to the trial court, ultimately, you have to make the determination of whether or not these plans are fair to all voters across the state. Well, in, in the Stevenson 2 case, all, all this court was doing was um, upholding the findings made by the trial court. I, I don't read Stevenson 2 as making any affirmative statements about whether Maptitude should or not be used or what measures of compactness are correct or not. That wasn't an issue, and as far as I know, it's never come before this court again. Perhaps, Your Honor, if, if a map was struck down specifically because the General Assembly chose a compactness measure that the court didn't like, that's a case for a, for a future day. But I, I, don't, I don't see how that helps the plaintiffs uh, or the trial court in this situation where objectively, verifiably, objective numbers were used out of a software that no one questioned, and yet the trial court came to manifestly different conclusions on maps that use the, that use the, same, the same metrics. So are, are you saying, in essence, that by uh, giving deference to the General Assembly's methods um, and calculations that the trial court in essence is not allowed to to weigh that evidence that he just or that they just have to take it at face value and adopt it if they give deference or is that something like the rest of the evidence that the trial court weighs and decides what to believe and what not to believe and makes findings of fact and conclusions of law but to the point to the to the question that chief justice asked earlier in this area unlike any other which metrics you use which elections you use, how you calculate them, are manifestly policy decisions. So the court should defer the General Assembly when it makes those policy decisions unless they, they make obviously wrong decisions. No evidence points to 
the, the fact that the General Assembly's use of mean median, the way it was calculated under Maptitude, how it used the staff to do that, no evidence has called that into question. You, you used the word, um, go ahead. You've used the, the expression obviously wrong several times. A clear error is a standard I recognize. I'm not sure about obviously wrong. I don't know that I've ever seen a case that used that expression. That, Mr. Carr, what do you mean by what is what is obvious? What, what's something that's obviously wrong and something that's not obviously wrong? It's like anything. When the, when the court applies a presumption, it takes a lot to overcome that presumption. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a presumption. So in this particular case, for instance, if there had been evidence that had come forward that said uh calculates mean median wrong, and it's been established that MAPTITUDE calculates mean median incorrectly, and the General Assembly ignore that went ahead, then the trial court could say, well, the, the use of the MAPTITUDE, we're not going to defer to that because it was clearly wrong. And that, that's, that's what I mean. Maybe I'm using some colloquialisms here, uh, but I, I, I've that's been, what I've I mean. Been, I've been known to do that myself, <laughs> so that's... Well, so I wanted to ask you about the statement you were making earlier about the fact that in deciding how to evaluate whether or not a map is a partisan gerrymander and which election returns to use for, for the um, various um, political science ways of testing that, that it's a policy decision of the General Assembly which elections to use for that analysis. And, and I, I'm curious how that squares with the long line of cases in the um, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act jurisprudence where the uh, task is to evaluate racially polarized voting and courts have been very involved in deciding whether or not an expert chose the right elections to evaluate racially polarized voting. And in fact, in a case in the Fourth Circuit out of Alamance County, the court said that the experts had not, had only analyzed races involving black versus white candidates and that they needed as a matter of law to also analyze cases involving uh, elections involving white versus white candidates. So the court there is establishing what types of uh, elections need to be looked at in order to meet the legal standard ultimately approving racially polarized voting. Why isn't the same true here? Well, Your Honor, for one thing, uh, cases involving racial discrimination are based and premised upon specific language in a statute. They are not pulled out of whole cloth out of uh, provisions that say nothing about redistricting. And so the language and the text of the statute by its uh, nature constrains the court and itself provides some limitation on how the court does that. And then obviously once, uh, once the, the Congress in the case of the VRA has given the courts the specific authority to enforce a particular standard that it has set out in actual text. Well, of course, then the courts have the ability, the duty to grapple with that and to, and to over time figure out which, what are the best ways to measure that which the legislature itself has given the court authority to enforce. That is not the case here. Uh, there is no uh, fair districts amendment to the North Carolina Constitution. There is no text constraining this court's exercise of the judicial power. Uh, and so in this case, uh, uniquely, when the court chooses what elections to use, how to calculate the metrics, 
It is making policy decisions about uh, how much partisanship is too much. It's not saying you can't use partisanship at all, like is the case in some states. It's saying, well, you can use some partisanship. Well, there's no text, there's nothing for the legislature or this course to, to court to lean into to decide what does that actually mean. In that situation, they, these are inherently policy decisions for courts to be deciding the very fundamental issues uh, at issue in, when you draw a map using some level of partisanship. Um, and the danger here, in our opinion, um, is that when the court opens it up, the plaintiffs are asking, the, the legislature used the mean, median, and efficiency gap. The trial court uh, went with that, uh, even though it somehow managed to come to different conclusions on different maps using the same uh, metrics. But the plaintiffs here want to open this up to this, what they call this holistic analysis. Uh, and, and what that would simply do is it would transform redistricting into a game of gotcha by litigants and the courts. Uh, because there are so many ways to calculate these metrics, this approach would intentionally create ambiguity so that if the political result isn't obtained by a particular litigant of whatever persuasion, then they can come in and ask the court to second guess it. And I guess the, one of the concerns I've got, and I think I referred to you as Mr. Farr a second ago, which I apologize for, I was looking at him. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, Mr. Track, Mr. Track, we've got on the one hand concerns expressed that a General Assembly, by virtue of the fact that these calculations are affected by various variables, that the General Assembly can, I mean, I don't, don't never like this word, but I'm going to use it, uh, can quote unquote gain the system by a selective use of particular elections. You've got that concern on the one hand, and you've got a concern that a plaintiff might try to game the system on the other in the way that you just described. Uh, why is it not permissible for a trial court to take those risks into consideration, treat this as ultimately a factual determination of the type that a trial court typically makes, and then have its decision reviewed for sufficiency of the evidence so that the question before us in this instance with respect to both the congressional maps and the Senate map be, in essence, was the trial court's decision supported by the evidence that the trial court elected to deem credible? Right, Your Honor, the, two answers to that. The, the, the problem with that is that if, if essentially, in our opinion, eviscerates the presumption and the deference that the legislature's owed. Here, for instance, there was no evidence that the way the General Assembly calculated these metrics was gained in any way. Let, let me point you to paragraphs 14 and 15 and follow up to that question okay. uh, with regard to the trial court's order. It specifically talked about maptitude it specifically talked about the 12 elections. Uh, two questions arise from that. One is, where did these 12 elections come from? They were approved, but where did they come from? And secondly, in paragraph 16, it says, the court finds the General Assembly's use of partisan data in this matter comported with the Supreme Court remedial order. So my question, as you look at that, uh, is, is this not a finding of the fact by the trial court that maptitude and these 12 elections were a proper uh, approach. Yes, Your Honor. We believe we believe it is. Uh, we believe that the trial court agreed with the way 
that the General Assembly calculated these and then uh, inexplicably chose one set as applies to a, to a map versus another that were exact same for another map. Um, and and the, um, the, the General Assembly engaging in this process erred on the side of caution in every res respect. And we believe the trial court's conclusions uh, reflect the fact that they erred on the side of caution. They were trying to, to find a manageable way to comply with the order and actually draw maps that could actually get votes in a legislative body. And that's a very difficult task. And they did that. And the trial court uh, should have deferred to those judgments that it made, which it did in, in part, but then inexplicably didn't apply that to the congressional map. Why, we don't know, because the trial court didn't explain why it was rejecting one map over the other. And Justice Herbin, to your point, this, this court in the past, in the context of redistricting, has adopted bright line rules. In the Pender County v. Bartlett case, the, the court adopted a bright line rule. And what the court said was they, they, were, they were saying that they, the General Assembly deserves bright line rules in order for the redistricting to remain a legislative task and not a judicial task. That's what the court said. It also said um, that the General Assembly needed to have a safe harbor when complying with this court's directives. And it said that redistricting should be a legislative responsibility. And it said, we do not believe the political process is enhanced if the power of the courts is consistently invoked to second guess the General Assembly's redistricting decisions. So this court has already spoken on this issue. This holistic approach is not only not manageable, it not only invites the, the usurping of the, of the redistricting function to the courts from the legislature, it's been specifically rejected by this court in the not so distant past. You're, you're into your rebuttal time, Mr. Trapp. Okay. Thank you, Your Honor. No other questions. I'll reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you. Your Honors, the, the legislative defendants have made their position clear. They're asking the court to overrule Harper 1 and replace the standard from Harper 1 with a efficiency gap and mean median standard where the General Assembly gets to cherry pick which elections it uses and where you ignore all of their evidence. And that's what they just said. Um, that's what the trial court did with respect to the Senate map. It discarded the Harper 1 standard. And you heard no argument from the legislative defendants that the senator, the congressional map, actually satisfies the standard that this court articulated in Harper 1. Um, they conceded the trial court didn't apply that standard. In fact, they claimed that it would be impossible to apply, which is, which is not true. Um, you know, this doesn't turn making maps into a game of gotcha. It's actually not that hard to pass a map that's fair. Um, it's obvious that these maps weren't. They passed on you know, uh, party line votes. So the, the problem isn't isn't that the General Assembly can't, you know, not partisan gerrymander, it can. Um, the problem is that it's remedial maps, both the congressional and the Senate maps, were dramatically skewed to favor Republicans, as all of the neutral advisors concluded. Exactly the same analysis that led the court to strike down all three 2021 maps means that the court should strike down the congressional and the Senate remedial maps. Um, and, you know, the chances of picking these maps without intent is vanishingly small. 
That's what the evidence in this, the undisputed evidence below showed. And I'd say that the discussion here illustrates why the court should stick to Harper 1 and not you know, pick one metric that the General Assembly can, can cherry pick. Um, so the bottom line here is, you know, on the Senate appeal, there's sort of two very simple points. First is the concession that the trial court didn't apply the governing standard, and that alone is, is reason to reverse. Um, and second, even under the erroneously narrow legal standard, Mr. Strack did not dispute that the court just got it factually wrong, that there was no competent evidence to support its conclusion that a majority of advisors and experts um, concluded that the 1% mean median gap was satisfied. So even, even on the cherry-picked standards that the General Assembly focused on here, they didn't satisfy those standards. Um, I think the legislative defense also argued that uh, you know, choosing what evidence uh, the court should analyze, uh, analyze as a policy decision, um, that's obviously not true. Setting out a legal test and analyzing the facts is a quintessentially judicial decision. The legislative defense wouldn't get deference on that even if this weren't in the remedial phase. They didn't get any deference on that in the liability phase of Harper, and they certainly shouldn't in the remedial phase. Um, and look, you know, at bottom, the legislative defendants have made very clear that notwithstanding Harper 1, they continue to believe that the Constitution imposes no constraints on the redistricting process at all. The court said that they're wrong. Um, they tried to do it again with the Senate and the congressional map, and you know, this court should, should remind them that the North Carolina Constitution prohibits partisan gerrymandering and affirm on the congressional map and reverse with respect to the Senate map. Your Honors, the remedial process here shows the wisdom of the court's decision in Harper 1 not to make a bright-lined safe harbor rule because as, these, as the competent evidence shows here, using such a bright-lined rule would result in maps that deny substantially equal voting power to voters, maps that do not provide voters an equal opportunity to aggregate their votes to a majority to gain a majority um, this is as true for the Senate it is as true um, as well for the house um, uh, the Mattingly ensembles that were credited by this trial the trial court and this court as well show it would have been easy easy to get a map that scored better on partisan metrics without sacrificing neutral redistricting criteria the political geography did not necessitate the amount of partisan skew in the House or Senate maps. Um, if that had been true, it would have been difficult. And finally, to the extent that this court anticipated that fixing the partisan gerrymandering would also remedy the destruction of crossover districts that performed for black voters, that did not happen and it must be addressed now. Our Constitution requires a frequent recurrence to fundamental principles. If we are to give full force and effect to this court's February opinion, um, the court must strike down the remedial House and Senate maps. Justice requires it. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you. Other rebuttal? 
Thank you, Your Honor. Briefly, uh, the trial court did exactly what this court asked it to do. The trial, the court, this court specified two metrics with two particular thresholds, and it said a court could use those. So this court ought not fault the trial court for doing exactly what this court advised it could do. The General Assembly then took that even more to heart and used it to ensure that it would draw objective maps that complied with what this court said the trial court could look at, and that would frankly be up the most manageable of all the standards uh, that the, the court discussed. The General Assembly did that. They took that to heart, and the trial court deferred on the Senate, but not on the congressional, and why is inexplicable, but this court should certainly uh, defer to the choices that the General Assembly made uh, when they were trying to under, undertake this very difficult, um, this very difficult task. I would also point out that as to the, 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 the point about, you know, whether one map, well, whether one can draw a better map than another. Well, as this court has probably seen, uh, experts and litigants can outdo each other on maps using these kind of metrics all the time. That's part of the problem. Uh, the plaintiffs say that's a feature, not a bug. I say that's a bug and that's a real problem. But even Dr. Groffman, uh, one of the special master's assistants, uh, also disagrees that just having the best map is what matters. He said, quote, a legislative map does not have to be the best possible map. The mere fact that a better map on multiple criteria exists does not require a court to choose that map over a map that is adopted through legal channels and due process. That's exactly what the General Assembly did in this particular instance. And the trial court should have deferred to both all of its maps, and this this court uh, uh, ought to do the same. Um, otherwise, this court is barreling into the political wilderness, where the, the legislative authority to redistrict will be transferred from the court, the legislature to the courts. The trial court's actions in this case regarding the congressional plan is a clear example of how this will happen. It is a clear example. Um, so, we ask the court to dismiss the congressional appeal per, per our motion and affirm the trial court's approval of the legislative plans. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you, all counsel. Mr. Clerk. All rise. Oh, yes, oh, yes, oh, yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina will be in recess until the next calling of the calendar. God save the state and this honorable court.